Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I've traveled a lot, especially with my parents living on the other side of the country, and I can't tell you how important it is to have the right bags. I've gotten my bags packed, and they've had holes in them. I've tried the hard ones, and the hard shell ones have been cracked. So it really is important to travel with the right luggage. We are teaming up DB exclusively to offer our listeners 10% off your net purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB is time to move on, time to get going. So if you look below, we're going to have the link in the description. This week, uh, viewer discretion is advised. We are going to be covering topics that deal with suicidal idealizations and self-harm. So please be aware of that. And I'd like to welcome you back to Psych Your Crime. As always, I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And I just want to thank you for listening and joining me once again. Um, now, many of you know I do have a day job. I do clinical work. And so I never believed I'd be able to continue to do this for this long. I absolutely never believed I was going to reach an international audience. So when I look at my analytics and I see that we have people listening in Turkey and people listening in South Africa, I'm always surprised that I'm able to reach such a huge audience on an international level. So thank you so much for continuing to listen. Now, uh, we have the merchandise stores up. There'll be links to that. Um, We have Christmas merchandise out. We have Halloween merchandise out. Uh, The Christmas merchandise is in reference to a Christmas episode from a couple of years ago. Um, Santa's got a flamethrower and a grudge. So you'll be able to get that only in... um, in an apparel now if you go to the website it is the design by humans website it does have international shipping any design you can get it in a phone case you can get it in a mouse pad you can get it in a um you can get a postcard you can get it in a sticker and then you can get it in a men's t-shirt a women's t-shirt you can get it in an actual junior sweater you can get it in a sweatshirt you can get it in a hoodie you just have to pick the type of apparel that you want and then you go in and pick actual the colors so you can actually um, modify it and you can customize it to take the design and put it on the color that you want and then um, pick the size so all of the designs are customizable so that you can make it fit your personal style so um, it comes in many different styles Um, so if you want to head over there like i said there's halloween merchandise up and there is christmas merchandise so if you want to get in early and get your christmas merchandise um, um and that's the design by humans uh store uh it's under crime scandal the link will be down below 
Uh, the Patreon is up as well. Um, there's two tiers, uh, early access uh, to stuff. And then also there's going to be the second tier in which you're going to be able to request crimes. So like I said, I appreciate you continuing to listen, but those are two ways that you can support um, even further. So um, this week we're going to be looking at a crime that had a huge impact on popular culture. Um, unfortunately, um, many people would prefer it didn't, but it did. Um, and that is the case of Bud Dwyer. Um, now, many people seek attention in several different forms, but those who want others to watch them pass away violently are among the most shopping, shocking. Public suicide has many facets. It's often a political or social statement, especially when people try and coerce others to do it with them. Mass suicide comes to mind. Sometimes public suicide is a result of mental derangement or depression. The public nature of the act can also be the ultimate way to refuse being anonymous. On the other hand, by making it public, these people might hope that someone helps them. The father of suicidal ideology, Edwin Schneidman found from studying survivors that they weren't sure. I believe he stated that people who are actually committing suicide are ambivalent about life and death at the very moment that they are committing suicide. They wish to die, but they simultaneously wish to be rescued. Even if these people leave a note about why they want to die, they often don't say why they do it in public. So it's difficult to study this phenomenon. I've seen people die by jumping from buildings or throwing themselves under trains, which is public and incredibly awful, but the cases are more perplexing as in-your-face gestures, and some don't seem ambivalent at all. In 1974, the host of a talk show, Christine Chubeck, did a news story on suicide. Around this time, she told her family she was lonely and depressed. On her show, an officer had shown her how to commit suicide with wad cutter target bullets, which gave her an idea. This is one thing I don't understand. I don't understand when people do stories on suicide and they cover ways to do it. Um, I, I have never understood that. On the morning of her fatal act, Chubuck read some news stories and then said, in keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts in living color, you're going to see another first, an attempted suicide. She then shot herself in her right ear, fell forward, and hit her head before the camera went black. At just 29, she died at the hospital. One man took his obsession with the assassination of John F. Kennedy into the public arena. Richard E. Clem, who just turned 50 in the year 2003, the year of the 40th anniversary of the assassination, dressed in a camouflage jacket and went to Delay Plaza in Dallas. He stood on the X on the street that marks where Kennedy was hit with a bullet and just before daylight shot himself. A 19-year-old named Kip Rusty Walker was performing on his electric keyboard on a stage at a coffee shop in Oregon when he wrapped up a song called Sorry for All the Mess and pulled out a knife. In front of an audience of 15 people, he stabbed himself repeatedly in the chest and fell to the, st to the floor on stage. At first, the audience clapped, believing it to be part of the act, macabre as it was. When Walker lay still, eventually they realized he had actually committed suicide. Several people have set up their suicides on live webcams. With the invention of the internet, they can spread the message far and wide. Alexander Biggs, a young man in Florida with a history of mental illness, initially posted his intentions online, apparently trying to drum up an audience. He inserted a link into a blog along with his note. Those who hit the link saw him lying on a bed. Over a period of 12 hours, viewers debated via messages over whether or not to notify the authorities before finally someone did. By this time, the man had been lying dead from drug toxicity. A 20-year-old in Canada, known as Stephen, attempted suicide in his dorm room while he was live streaming it. According to reports, Stephen had posted he was an old fag who would finally give back to the community. I'm willing to be a hero on cam for all of you. Another user volunteered to set up a group chat and it reached 200 people. 
when Stephen took pills and drank vodka and then lit a fire in the corner of his room before crawling in bed. Viewers watched the room fill with smoke as Stephen typed a message to the effect that he was dead. Within 20 minutes, firefighters broke in and pulled him from the room. He suffered serious injuries, but survived. Can we talk about the fact that people literally just watched him do all this and did nothing except type in group chat 200 people? That's horrible. On March 21st, 2007, Kevin Wittrick, a 42-year-old electrical engineer, was in a chat with about 60 people who were reportedly there to give and receive insults, like a Yo Mama Cat chat. As the other participants watched, Wittrick slung a rope over a joist in his home, stood on a chair, and hung himself. Some viewers thought it was fake, some even encouraged him, but someone contacted the police, but they had arrived too late. Now, in my state, the act of encouraging a suicide and not actively stopping someone or letting someone know that someone had attempted or is attempting suicide is actually criminal. Um, it was very, very big case. It made headlines. So in my state, in the United States, if you know someone is intending to harm themselves and you don't try and intervene and you don't tell anyone, even worse, if you actively encourage them, you can be criminally charged with their death. Our Bud Dwyer was born on November 21st, 1939 in St. Charles, Missouri. Dwyer graduated in 1961 with an associate bachelor's in political science and accounting from Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, where he was a member of the Beta Chi chapter of the Theta Chi fraternity. After earning a master's degree in education in 1963, he taught social studies and coached football at Cambridge Springs High School. As a Republican, Dwyer became active in politics. He was elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives from the 6th District. All those seats were appropriated by the county before 1969. In 1964, he was re-elected, and in 1966 and again in 1968. In 1970, while still sitting state representative, Dwyer ran for a seat in the Pennsylvania State Senate from its 50th district and won. Shortly after his victory, he resigned his seat in the state house and was sworn in as a senator in January of 1971. After being elected to additional terms in 1974 and 1978, Dwyer decided to try for a state office and in 1980 ran for and won the office of Pennsylvania State Treasurer. That had been held by a man by the name of Robert E. Casey since 1976. He ran for a second and last term in 1984 and won and was re-elected to the seat. From 1979 to 1981, before Dwyer was the state treasurer, public employees of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania overpaid millions of dollars in federal insurance contributions. As a result, the state required an accounting firm to determine refunds for its employees. Dwyer awarded the no-bid U.S. $4.6 million contract to Computer Technology Associates, a California-based firm owned by John Torquato Jr., a native of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on May 10, 1984. In early 1984, Dennis Schatzman, deputy controller of Pittsburgh School District, noticed financial discrepancies in the CTA contract and wrote to Pittsburgh school officials regarding this. Schatzman later contacted officials at the accounting firm Arthur Young & Associates, who confirmed that the no-bid CTA contract was overpriced by millions. In late July 1984, Janice R. Kincaid, a former CTA employee, released a sworn statement claiming that Dwyer awarded the contract to CTA because he was promised a $30,000 kickback by the company. In June 1984, the Office of Pennsylvania Auditor General informed the FBI of the bribery that had occurred during the awarding of the contract. An investigation into Dwyer's awarding of the CTA contract was undertaken by federal prosecutors. Upon learning of the investigation, Dwyer rescinded the contract with CTA on July 11, 1984. Subsequently, Dwyer repeatedly attempted to stop, divert, and forestall the investigation 
stating that the U.S. attorney had neither the authority nor the evidence to pursue a prosecution. Dwyer later admitted to telling his staff to withhold requests for proposal information from the U.S. attorney and the FBI during the investigation. After being indicted by a federal grand jury, Dwyer was finally charged with agreeing to receive a kickback of $300,000 in return for rewarding CTA the contract. Dwyer stated he offered to take a polygraph exam, but only on the condition that if he passed it, he would not be indicted. The state rejected Dwyer's offer. Prior to Dwyer's indictment, on October 22, 1984, a grand jury indicted Torquato, Torquato's attorney William T. Smith, Judy Smith, Alan R. Stoneman, and David Herbert. At Smith's 1985 trial, Smith, who was a friend of Dwyer's, testified that he did not bribe Dwyer and instead that Torquato offered Dwyer a campaign contribution in return for the CTA contract. Yet Dwyer rejected Torquato's offer. In contrast, Torquato testified that Smith offered Dwyer a $300,000 bribe in return for the contract. Dwyer, acting as a defense witness for Smith at Smith's trial, denied he was offered any contribution at all. In August 1984, Smith failed a polygraph exam when he stated he did not bribe Dwyer or any state officials. However, prior to Smith's trial in October 27, 1984, four days after Smith's indictment, Smith confessed to offering Dwyer a bribe and stated that Dwyer had accepted. I met with Dwyer in his office and at the insistence of Torquato offered to give him $300,000 if he signed a contract with CTA Limited. Dwyer talked about $100,000 to him personally, $100,000 to his campaign committee, $100,000 to the Republican State Committee. Dwyer was going to be to see a man named Robert Asher in Montgomery County that weekend to talk to him about how this should be done properly. However, Bob Asher, the then Republican Party chairman for the state of Pennsylvania, objected to this and requested that the 300000 be directly given to the Republican State Committee since Asher did not want Dwyer to go to jail. Asher indicated that he had a conversation with Mr. Dwyer and he knew that I had made him an offer of $300,000 as a contribution. And then he was very angry when he began to talk about that, angry with me. He said that he thought that I would know better than to offer a contribution to Mr. Dwyer. He said that if there was going to be a contribution, it would need to go to the Republican State Committee. (laughs) Just, Just a little bit of widespread corruption, just a little. Dwyer, along with Asher, were indicted by a federal grand jury on May 13, 1986, in the hopes of reducing his 12-year sentence stemming from his 1985 conviction. Smith testified on behalf of the federal government against Dwyer and Asher at their 1986 trial. Ultimately, Smith did not receive any reduction in his sentence for testifying against Dwyer although his wife, Judy Smith, was granted immunity from prosecution. Before testifying against Dwyer, Smith passed a polygraph exam. It was revealed at Dwyer's trial that he sought and won approval for special legislation, Act 38 of 1984, or House Bill 1397, that authorized him to recover FICA overpayments that quoted computer tape seized from CTA's office on July 6, 1984, that showed that Dwyer was to receive a $300,000 payoff for awarding CTA the contract. Moreover, Smith and Torquato's claims about Dwyer being bribed were corroborated by four independent and impartial witnesses. Smith's testimony against Dwyer was virtually identical to written statements Smith made long before entering into any type of plea arrangement. Additionally, FBI agents testified that Smith attempted to conceal his involvement in the scheme when after learning of the FBI investigation, he erased any entries in his appointment book of the March 2nd, 1984 meeting with Torquato and Smith in which he was first offered the bribe. Dwyer maintained he awarded CTA the contract on the basis of his Treasury Task Force recommendations, yet his con- this conflicted with the fact 
Dwyer personally handled all matters related to the contract six days prior to awarding it to CTA. Furthermore, his task force contribution merely consisted in the making of a single phone call to David. Herbert, the former state director for Social Security who controlled FICA recovery for Pennsylvania's public employees and who was subsequently convicted for conspiring with CTA. Dwyer awarded the contract to CTA, an obscure California firm with only three employees, little equipment and little experience despite being informed in April 1984 by major Pennsylvania-based accounting firm Arthur Young & Associates who had 250 employees and submitted a proposal on April 13, 1984, at least 14 days prior to CTA, that they could perform the FICA recovery as fast as CTA for half the cost. Oh, wow. So, um, for those of you who don't understand, or this may seem a little complicated, when any type of government contract um, goes up, they take bids from several different um, agencies, organizations, and usually um, the way it goes is the contract is rewarded to whoever can do it the cheapest. And so it may be a small firm, it may be a big company. Usually it's the big company who can do it the cheapest because they have the most labor to get it done the fastest. Sometimes it can be a smaller firm just because they will have a, a lower operating cost because they're so small. It depends on the situation, but it usually is best practice that whoever gives the lowest um, quote for what the cost of um, the operating cost is, is going to get the contract. So it is really insane that they gave the contract to someone who could, who was going to do it for double the cost. Charles Collins Arthur Young's former director of management consulting in Pittsburgh testified at Dwyer's trial that Arthur Young and Associates, who unlike CTA, had experience in identical tax recovery work, was prepared to negotiate the FICA recovery contract that was half the cost of CTA already and that Dwyer was clearly aware of Arthur Young's position before committing to the CTA contract. Additionally, 16 other competitors were willing to be considered for the FICA recovery contract, and many had communicated with Treasurer Dwyer's office to request an opportunity to bid, yet Dwyer did not respond. So remember, this was a no-bid contract, meaning they just contacted CTA and handed them the contract at the price that they asked. Yet all these other people were like, hey, we can do this cheaper, you know, just negotiate with us, talk to us. So. This is why normally when a government contract goes up, they take open bidding so they can find the cheapest way to do it, which considering we are about to reach our debt ceiling again, it's why it's common practice in the way that they handle these contracts. Dwyer repeatedly stated that he awarded the contract to CTA via the task force recommendation on the basis of them providing immediate credit. Yet the contract between CTA and Dwyer contained no information regarding CTA's availability to provide credit. Moreover, Dwyer admitted he did not mention the concept of immediate credit to Arthur Young & Associates when officials from the firm asked why CTA was chosen. In contradiction to Dwyer's statements, without awarding CTA the contract on basis of their providing immediate credit, Arthur Young & Associates were told the CTA got the contract since they first recognized that the overpayments could be recovered and that they supported legislation they gave Dwyer the sole power for said contract. Nevertheless, Dwyer denied any wrongdoing, stating that after the CTA contract was signed, Smith merely made a generic offer to help him with his campaign. Dwyer's lawyer spoke to the prosecutor acting U.S. Attorney West, asking him if he would drop all charges against Dwyer if Dwyer resigned as the state treasurer. West declined. He instead offered to let Dwyer plead guilty to a single charge of bribe receiving, which would have meant up to a maximum of five years imprisonment as long as he resigned from his office of treasurer of Pennsylvania and cooperated fully with the government's investigation. But Dwyer refused and went to trial. At his trial, Dwyer did not take the stand and his lawyer, Paul Killian, presented no defense witnesses, since he thought the government did not sufficiently prove his case. 
It is possible that Dwyer did not testify in his own defense since he did not want to be questioned regarding his involvement in a 1980 conspiracy involving his wife's business, PolyEd, and two Pennsylvania State Education Association employees. One of these employees was Dwyer's close friend and campaign manager, Fred McKillop, who was subsequently fired from the Pennsylvania State Education Association for his involvement in the scheme and who later was featured in a 2010 documentary about Dwyer. In this conspiracy, which was investigated by the Office of the Pennsylvania Attorney General, Dwyer allegedly siphoned money from his campaign into his personal funds. Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I've traveled a lot, especially with my parents living on the other side of the country, and I can't tell you how important it is to have the right bags. I've gotten my bags packed, and they've had holes in them. I've tried the hard ones, and the hard shell ones have been cracked. So it really is important to travel with the right luggage. We are teaming up DB exclusively to offer our listeners 10% off your net purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB is time to move on, time to get going. So if you look below, we're going to have the link in the description. On December 18th, 1986, Dwyer was found guilty on 11 counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, perjury, and interstate transportation in aid of racketeering, and consequently faced sentencing of up to 55 years in prison and a $300,000 fine. His sentencing was scheduled for January 23, 1987, to be performed by U.S. District Judge Malcolm Muir. One mail fraud charge against Dwyer was dismissed by Judge Muir. One juror, Carolyn Edwards of Williamsport, found it emotionally difficult to convict Dwyer and Asher since they were men of very high integrity who had just made a mistake. If I had to hear one more time about people who have great futures ahead of them or who had great track records or who had read who had led great lives or who had great integrity, who just made mistakes, it's not just a mistake to take a bribe. Okay, that is a very calculated decision. This is something very planned. That's not a mistake. A mistake is when you write down, when you transpose two numbers in the contract. That's a mistake. A mistake is not putting your hand out and accepting $300,000. That is not a mistake. Bob Asher, Dwyer's co-defendant, was sentenced to one year in jail. He later returned to politics and served as a Republican National Committee man for Pennsylvania. Accounting firm Levin Horrath ultimately fulfilled the contract for $1.3 million, with slightly over a third of the fee possibly being subject to a rebate. If CTA were to have performed the recovery work, Pennsylvania would have lost $6 million. $6 million. They did it for $1.3 and they were charging $6 million. That's insane. That's ridiculous. Pennsylvania law stated that Dwyer could not officially be removed from office until he was sentenced. Given this, Dwyer stated that until his legal appeal was resolved, he was going to stay on as treasurer under leave of absence without pay and would not resign before having the opportunity to appeal his conviction. In the interim, the Treasury Department would be run by Deputy Treasurer Donald L. Johnson. Dwyer continued to profess his innocence after he was convicted, and on December 23rd wrote a letter to President Ronald Reagan seeking a pardon, and to Senator Arlene Specter seeking support for this. The week of Dwyer's sentencing, Pennsylvania State Attorney General Leroy Zimmerman and state prosecutors were investigating a provision of the Pennsylvania State Constitution where removal of a civil worker from office who has been convicted of a crime is self-executing, thus automatically upon the person's sentencing. 
A decision confirming this constitutional point was expected on January 22nd, the day before Dwyer's sentencing. In a meeting in his home on January 15, 1987, Dwyer discussed the idea of a press conference with his press secretary, James Duke Horshock, and Deputy Treasurer Don Johnson. At the meeting, both Horshock and Johnson cautioned Dwyer not to use the conference to attack the governor or other individuals involved in his criminal conviction, and both suggested that Dwyer that should hold the conference at a location other than his office. Dwyer angrily rejected their suggestions, but nevertheless assured both men that he would not attack anybody involved in his conviction. He additionally stated that he would not announce his resignation at the conference, but rather thank his staff and friends. Nevertheless, both men left assuming Dwyer would ultimately resign at the conference, although Horshock had fears that Dwyer was going to break this promise. The next day, Dwyer visited his lawyer, Paul Killian, who told Dwyer to express repentance for his crimes. Dwyer responded by agreeing to change his version of events, which was said to be presented to Judge Muir at Dwyer's presenting conference scheduled for the afternoon of January 22nd. Dwyer later saw Killian again, giving him an updated version of events and stated that he would announce his resignation at the press conference yet did not want Killian to attend the conference. Dwyer finally reached Senator Specter by telephone on January 21st, two days before his sentencing. A Specter aide stated that the two of them talked for 8 to 10 minutes. Following up on his letter to the senator asking for help, he personally wrote to President Ronald Reagan asking for a presidential pardon. In this letter, Dwyer once again professed his innocence in saying that the concept of immediate credit was not understood by the uneducated, unsophisticated rural jury at his trial. Immediate credit is exactly, it's stated in the actual name. It's immediate credit. Here's credit. Like, there's no concept to understand, and that's insulting and really condescending. The senator responded that this request to President Reagan was not realistic because the judicial process, including appeals, had not yet run its course. So for those of you who don't know how it works in the United States, you cannot get a presidential pardon unless all of your avenues of recourse have been exhausted. So the appeals course must be exhausted and he hasn't even been sentenced, <laughs> let alone. Actually, that's not true. You can be pardoned, but you have to be sentenced first. So he hasn't even been sentenced and he's asking for a pardon before he's been sentenced because Trump did actually pardon multiple people directly after they got sentenced. But basically before Trump, presidents normally only pardon people who had exhausted all their appeals, people who were facing long amounts of time in jail. That used to be the common procedure is they only pardon people who had exhausted all their appeals and they had no other avenue for recourse. But Trump changed that and he pardoned people who had just been sentenced. So that's why she's saying it's not unrealistic and the judicial process, including appeals, had not run its course. He hadn't even been sentenced yet. So he hadn't even had the time to put in his first appeal. On the same day, Dwyer asked his press secretary Horshock and deputy press secretary Gregory Penny to set up a news conference for the next day without telling them what they were going to discuss. Horshock arranged the press conference for 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time the next day on January 22nd. The press secretary called dozens of reporters and asked them to attend and told them he didn't know what it was about. Initially, Dwyer wanted to ban certain reporters from the press conference who he believed would write biased accounts about them and even suggested that a guard should be in attendance to prevent entry to those who were not on an authorized list. Horshock, who was unconvinced about Dwyer's claims that he was being conspired against, objected, saying to Dwyer that he could not use state government facilities to manipulate a free flow of information. That is a very different change than the way things are right now. Leading up to the press conference, acting U.S. Attorney West who had secured the conviction against Dwyer, remarked that the treasurer's supposed resignation sounds like the appropriate thing to do under the circumstances. It seems like it would save everybody a lot of time and aggravation. 
Similarly, the Harrisburg Patriot News reporter Ken Marshall described the consensus among reporters that they would be attending to see Dwyer announce his resignation. My mission was to stay there until he said those words and then call in, call it in as the new top story. The night before the press conference, Dwyer wrote the following note. I enjoy being with Joe so much. The next 20 years or so would have been wonderful. Tomorrow is going to be so difficult. I hope I can go through with it. The next morning, Dwyer went to his press conference as planned. Appearing nervous and agitated, he again professed his innocence and began reading from a 21-page prepared text letter described as rambling, polemaic about the criminal justice system. It singled out former Governor Thornburg, acting U.S. Attorney West, agents in the FBI, Judge Muir, and others for tarnishing the justice system and ruining him. Dwyer stated that Attorney West purposefully had Dwyer's trial not in Harrisburg, but Williamsport, since in Williamsport the jury pool was mostly uneducated in the most uneducated in the state of Pennsylvania. Dwyer spoke out against the death penalty and expressed regret for voting in favor of it while he was in the Pennsylvania Assembly. The speech lasted for 30 minutes and approximately halfway into it with no apparent end in sight. Some of the press began to pack up and leave. Dwyer spotted this and interrupted himself to say, those of you who are putting your cameras away, I think you might want to stay because we're not finished yet. Given the sensitive nature of the portions of Dwyer's text, Press Secretary Horshock had considered interrupting him outright to stop him, but concluded that he would hold his own press conference afterwards. I had to make it known that I was not aware of the content of the statement. I didn't want to be thought that I wrote this. Upon reaching the final page of the statement, which had not been distributed, distributed to the press nor the press secretary Horshock in advance, Dwyer paused. I'm on the last page now, and I don't have enough to pass out. But, Duke, I'll leave this here and you can make copies for the people. There's a few extra copies right now. Dwyer continued, I thank the good Lord for giving me 47 years of excited challenges, stimulating experiences, many happy occasions, and most of all the finest wife and children any man could ever desire. Now my life has changed for no apparent reason. People who call and write are exasperated and feel hopeless. They know I am innocent and want to help, but in this nation, the world's greatest democracy, there's nothing they can do to prevent me from being punished for a crime they know I did not commit. Some who have called and said that I am a modern-day Job. Judge Muir is also noted for his medieval sentences. I face a maximum sentence of 55 years in prison and $305,000 fine for being innocent. Judge Muir has already told the press that he felt invigorated when we were felt guilty, and he plans to imprison me as a deterrent to other public officials. But it wouldn't be a deterrent because every public official who knows me knows that I'm innocent. It wouldn't be legitimate punishment because I've done nothing wrong. <clears throat> Since I'm a victim of a political persecution, my prison would simply be an American gulag. I ask those that believe in me to continue to extend friendship and prayer to my family to work untiringly for the creation of true justice system here in the United States and to press on with efforts to vindicate me so that my family and their future families are not tainted by this injustice that has been perpetuated against me. We were confident that the right and truth would prevail and I would be acquitted and would be, and be able to devote the rest of our lives to working to create a justice system here in the United States. The guilty verdict has strengthened that resolve. But as we've discussed our plans to expose the warts of our legal system, people have said, why bother? No one cares. You look foolish. 60 Minutes, 2020, the ACLU, Jack Anderson, and others have been publicizing cases like yours for years, and it doesn't bother anyone. I'd like to know what cases. At this point, Dwyer stopped reading from his prepared remarks with the gathered press it's still waiting on his expected resignation. There was still a significant portion remaining which detailed what he was actually planning to do, and it reads as follows, but he did not read this to the crowd, so remember this was never read. I've repeatedly said that I'm not going to resign as a state treasurer. 
After many hours of thought and meditation, I've made a decision that should not be an example to anyone because it is unique to myself. Last May, I told you that after the trial, I would give you the story of a decade. To those of you who are shallow, the events of this morning will be that story. But to those of you with depth and concern, the real story will be that I hope and pray results from this morning in the coming months and years, the development of the true justice system here in the United States. I'm going to die in office in an effort to see if the shameful facts spread out in all their shame will not burn through our civic shamelessness and set fire to American pride. Please tell my story on every radio and television station and in every newspaper and magazine in the U.S. Please leave immediately if you have a weak stomach or mind since I don't want to cause physical or mental distress. Joanne, Rob, Dee Dee, I love you. Thank you for making my life so happy. Goodbye to you on the count of three. Please make sure that the sacrifice of my life is not in vain. After deciding to break from his speech, Dwyer called to the three of his staffers, giving each a sealed envelope with the insignia of the Treasury Department. The first envelope given to Bob Holst contained a letter addressed to then Pennsylvania Governor Bob Casey, who had taken office just two days earlier. The second, given to Deputy Press Secretary Gregory Penny, contained an organ donor card and other related materials. The last, given to Deputy Treasurer Don Johnson, contained materials intended for Dwyer's family, including three letters, one for his wife Joanne and one for each of his children, Rob and Dee Dee, suggest and suggested funeral arrangements. Freelance photographer Gary Miller, one of the reporters in attendance, described the scene at this point stating, it was kind of long-winded and sad. After he had finished speaking and handing out the notes, Dwyer then produced a manila envelope that had a Model 19357 Magnum in it. When the crowd in the room saw that Dwyer had pulled a gun out of the envelope, the mood changed immediately, from one of waiting to see whether he would resign to one of panic, as nobody knew what he was planning to do with this gun. People gasped, and Dwyer backed up against the wall, holding the weapon close to his body. Dwyer calmly stated to his audience, Please, please leave the room if this will, if this will affect you. Some people in the room left to call for help. Among those who stayed, some pleaded with Dwyer to surrender the gun, while others tried to approach him and seize the weapon. Dwyer warned against either, exclaiming in his final words, Don't. 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 This will hurt someone. Just seconds later, Dwyer quickly fired one shot through the roof of his mouth and into his brain and collapsed to the floor. Dead. Five news cameras recorded the event. One of the cameras remained focused on Dwyer and captured close-up footage of the aftermath of the shooting. As his body was slumped, bloodied, with blood and brain matter streaming from the exit wound in the back of his head, as well as blood from his nostrils and mouth. He died instantly from the gunshot shortly before 11 a.m., but was not pronounced dead until 11.31. An aide later stated that Dwyer's corneas were made available for transplant per his organ donation wishes, but that no other organs were usable by the time his body reached the hospital. Many television stations throughout Pennsylvania, unfortunately, chose to broadcast taped footage of Dwyer's suicide to their midday audience. Philadelphia station WPVI, or Channel 6 at the time, showed Dwyer actually pulling the trigger, but it did not show the bullet path. Over the next several hours, news editors had to decide how much of the graphic footage to air. Many chose not to air the final moments, and WPVI also chose not to show the gunshot the second time. Many stations, including WCAU and Pennsylvania's Group W stations, KYW and KDKA, froze the action just before the gunshot. However, the later two allowed the audio of the shooting to continue after the frozen image. Group W News cameraman William L. Bill Martin and reporter David Solenberger had a camera set up at the conference. They chose to air the audio with the freeze frame of the gun. Only a handful aired the unedited press conference. WPVI in Philadelphia rebroadcast the suicide footage in full on their 5 p.m. and 6 p.m. action news broadcast, 
without warning the viewers. The station's broadcast is a source for copies that are currently circulating on the internet. WPXI in Pittsburgh is reported by the Associated Press to have broadcast the footage uncensored on an early newscast. In explaining the decision to air, WPXI operations manager By Williams said, it's an important event about an important man. Williams avoided airing the footage in the evening newscast, explaining everyone knew by then what he had done. And children were out of school. However, in central Pennsylvania, many children were home from school during the day due to a snowstorm. Many older students reacted to the event by creating black comedy jokes. A study of the incident of jokes showed that they were told only in areas where stations showed uncensored footage of the press conference. At least one reporter present at Dwyer's suicide suffered from being a witness. Tony Romeo, a radio reporter, was standing a few feet from Dwyer. After the suicide, Romeo developed depression and PTSD and had to take a break from journalism. Dwyer's deep mistrust of the outgoing Republican Governor Thornburg was spelled out in detail in his press conference statement. The timing of Dwyer's press conference in suicide meant that Thornburg was not empowered to appoint a treasurer to replace him. Instead, this fell on his successor, Democrat Bob Casey, who took office on January 20th. The letter Dwyer had sent to Casey stated, among other things, by the time you receive this letter, the state of the Office of State Treasurer of Pennsylvania will be vacant. I stress to you that I did not resign, but that State Treasurer of Pennsylvania to the end I was. It also stated that Casey will be the great governor that Pennsylvania needs at this time in our history. He suggested his wife as his successor, describing her as talent, personable, organized, and hardworking. Now, <clears throat> this while tragic and awful, um, this is the type of things that annihilators do, narcissists do. They want to control the narrative. He lost control. Um, he couldn't maintain his innocence. And by doing something so horrible so publicly, like he stated, he maintains treasure. He doesn't resign. Um, he can die saying he never lost the office. It was never taken from him. Um, just a very act of him suggesting his wife a successor, even though she was in a scandal that involves, um, her running a money scheme is insane. Um, the fact that he even talks about the judicial system, he compares himself to other great wrongs is absolutely insulting like i get that this is a horrible incident but we're talking about other great judicial wrongs in the same state like the move bombing where they greenlit dropping bombs on whole entire communities because they wanted to get some people out of one house um that is a judicial misgiving that is not anything the same with a man who, you know, took a bribe and was convicted. And even if he was wrongly convicted, that's not on the same scale as the mayor of a town, you know, a, approving bombing a community because he's trying to get rid of, you know, 14 people in one house. Um, so putting them side by side, you know, they don't match up and comparing yourself and saying that the justice system is broken because you got convicted of bribery um, and you haven't even started an appeal, you haven't even let the process happen is insulting. Um, and you can see the level of narcissism in this man. Um, like I said, the first thing he did after he got convicted was try and get a pardon from the president when he hasn't even been sentenced. He doesn't even know how much time he's going to do. Yes, he might be facing 55 years, but, you know, he's an upstanding member of the community and they could have given him six months. Like, 
it's insane that he hasn't even filed an appeal. They could have thrown everything out on an appeal. He doesn't know. So as horrible and as awful as this is, this reeks of narcissism and entitlement and is just absolutely there are so many feelings i have about this like no one should ever be in a position to self-harm themselves but the things that he's claiming and saying the reasoning behind what he did is awful um it it there's so many people who commit suicide because they're in horrible places they feel that they have no one they truly have no one they feel unseen they feel unloved they feel that they have nothing and no one to turn to whereas he is a wife he has children he had a whole team of people around him um at the same time i don't want to minimalize what he was feeling we don't know what he was feeling but you know what he put in that note and what he said in that press conference was so self-serving when you compare to people who are so marginalized and truly feel they have who really have nothing and people who truly feel alone um it just to me it seems to be so disingenuous and so separate from the actual act of what he did um and for him to say he's he's doing it to better the justice system like i said when the type of things that were happening in that state you know just don't align with what happened to him the type of egregious offenses happening in that state they they don't compare in any way shape or form with what happened to him and him doing what he did is not going to further fixing the wrongs of the criminal justice system in the state of pennsylvania so that's me personally that is how i feel about this like i said please don't feel that it has anything to do with the topic of suicide that is separate but i feel like his actions are disingenuous they're self-serving and they're absolutely separate from the message he's claiming he's trying to put through um they just don't seem to align and they don't seem to go together um, it's part of the reason I didn't have more studies on public suicide. Many of the studies I found, they just didn't seem to be actual studies. They seem to be more uh, personal opinions about why people commit public suicide. Many of them called people to, they, they had the opinion that people who commit public suicide were all histrionic. Um, that is an actual disorder. Um, it is a part of the class B personality disorders, um, narcissism, um, social, per, uh, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and histrionic personality disorder. It is an actual personality disorder. So please be careful when you are saying someone is acting histrionic. Basically what you are saying is that they are acting like pathological with their behavior. Um, so I didn't feel comfortable with a lot of the research that I found because it wasn't research. I felt like it was a lot of personal opinions about why people do things publicly and we don't know. We don't know why people are doing the things they do. It, it does seem self-serving and, 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 but we will never know like it by the nature of what happened. We can't know and we can't really study the phenomena, but it seemed like a lot of personal opinions and, and while personally on this particular subject i feel like the message did not go with the action that's just my personal opinion on this particular subject governor casey did not take dwyer's suggestions regardless of the events of january 22nd the governor and legislature of pennsylvania already expected dwyer to either resign or be removed as such a deal had already been brokered wherein the next treasurer a democrat would serve out dwyer's term and step down at the end this ended up being G. Davis Green Jr., who was appointed the 31st Treasurer of Pennsylvania on January 23rd, 1987, the day after Dwyer's suicide. Since Dwyer died in office, his widow, Joanne, was still able to collect full survivor benefits totaling over $1.28 million, equivalent to about $2.92 million in 2020, which at the time was the largest death benefit payout ever made by a state system. If Dwyer had been sentenced, the state law would have prohibited the payment of estate-provided pension benefits. 
As a spokesman for Dwyer suggested that he may have killed himself to preserve the pension benefits for his family, whose finances had been ruined by legal defenses. Other statements made by some friends and family also suggest that this was his motivation. However, at a panel discussion for the documentary An Honest Man, The Life of R. Bud Dwyer, Dwyer's sister Mary Cunn stated that Dwyer had made the decision to kill himself prior to knowing that he would lose his pension, and thus his motivation was not prov to provide financial support for his family, but rather to sacrifice himself to help the system. On January 27, 1987, Dwyer's lawyers filed an appeal with the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, seeking the dismissal of all post-trial motions that were then pending indictments, pending against Dwyer, an abatement of Dwyer's conviction, and a dismissal of his May 13, 1986 indictment. On March 5, 1987, the District Court denied all these motions and ordered to close the file on R. Bud Dwyer. Dwyer's lawyers appealed this to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and subsequently asked that they vacate the judgment. On remand, the district court was instructed to dismiss Dwyer's motions since the court lacked the ability and jurisdiction. Dwyer's convictions for mail fraud and conspiracy were upheld. Six years after his death, efforts were made to clear his name when a retrial request was filed. The request was denied in October of 1993. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, this is actually pretty common. Um, if someone commits suicide after they're convicted, um, before they have the chance to an appeal, um, it's pretty common for people to file an appeal asking that their conviction be vacated because they do not have the opportunity um, to be present to represent themselves for appeals. Um, under most circumstances, it does not work. Um, but recently, there was an instance where it did, and that was the case of Aaron Hernandez. Um, he filed his lawyers after he committed suicide in jail, filed to vacate the conviction due to the fact that he had committed suicide and could not speak for himself in the appeals process, and it was granted. Um, so while this is a rare occurrence, it does happen from time to time, and um, it rarely works. Now, this has actually been referenced multiple times in pop culture. The most notorious was Marilyn Manson's debut single, Get Your Gun, in 1994, which samples audio audio clips of Dwyer's suicide. So a lot of people don't understand why, aside from Marilyn Manson's recent legal issues, why people had issues with his music. This is one piece. Um, the, the most, most famous was the band Filter. In 1995, they had a song called Hey Man, Nice Shot, which was actually about this incident. Most people had no clue, no idea. They completely misunderstand what the song is about. Uh, there's actually multiple videos on YouTube um, that have this song as the most misunderstood song lyrics or most misunderstood um, or, or upbeat songs that have dark meanings. So uh, that was one of the most notorious. Now, I want to stop and take a second because like I know this is a very difficult subject matter. Anybody is struggling um they're going through difficulty for anybody who needs to hear this i want you to know that you are worthy you're worthy of love you're worthy of acceptance you're worthy of kindness you're worthy of you're you, you're just worthy you there are people who believe in you you may not feel like it it may feel like Everything is coming in on you. It may feel like the world and life is a pressing weight on your shoulders, but it can and it will get better. With time and with help, it will get better, which is why I'm going to include links for the Suicide Prevention Lifeline for the United States, but also because I know that I have so many listeners internationally, I'm going to include a link for opencounseling.com and that will have links internationally for multiple countries around the world on almost every continent. It will have links for Australia, New Zealand, um, the UK, uh, Scandinavia, uh, Africa, pretty much every place you can think of. Um, some of the links are going to have not just phone numbers, but they're also going to have links to websites, which will have multiple phone numbers, text auctions, websites. Um, so 
literally I tried to find as many links for as many possible places that anybody listening can reach out and talk to somebody no matter where you are anywhere on the planet. So even if you feel like you don't have anybody to talk to, even if you feel like there's no one there that recognizes you and sees you, I want you to know there is someone that sees you and that acknowledges your pain and is leaving you a lifeline. So please click on the link so that you can find someone to talk to. So with that, I'm going to end this episode. And um, next week, we're going to look at Conte Kimes. She was a serial killer who roped her son into helping her with her crimes. And in the meantime, once again, I want you to know that you have worth, you are worthy, and I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. Thank you.